Hello, thank you very much for downloading this two-part special with David Renwick and I, where I'll be asking your questions. Any of you who weren't able to send me in a question in time, not to worry, there may well be another opportunity further down the line, who knows. Decided to make this a two-part because it is quite a longy and very much believe in the mantra of leave them wanting more. So the second episode will be available next week. It really does amaze me that stars of one foot in the grave and the creator himself just give me the time of day on this podcast. I'm really grateful for the likes of David for giving up their time. Not to call this a cry for help. I would really appreciate if you could send in a review for the podcast, a, ideally a positive review. That way the algorithms go in favour of the podcast. Not only the podcast, but more importantly, one from the grave gets uh, more of a mention through the podcasting medium and other social media channels. Sorry to say the podcast received its first negative review but uh i'd just like to thank those who have sent a review thank you very much it's, it's much appreciated and very heartwarming even that one star review after the gremlin in an episode it's fine i've moved on from it sort of but also to thank you all for recent feedback following the graham episode and owen brenham especially and before that there was the lovely chris gernan director of endgame and series six anyway without further ado here is the great man himself thank you for downloading this is richard wilson speaking thank you for downloading one foot in the podcast. Hello to you, footers and gravers. I'm joined by creator and writer of this sensational sitcom, Mr. David Renwick, for a third time, who will be answering your questions today. So what a guy. So David, how are you? Are you are you well? Uh, yes, as well as one can ever ever claim claim to be in this uh, in this world. But uh, yeah. yes, muddling on at my age. It's great to have you on once again. Um, you know, I thought I got lucky two times, but here you are for a third. Before we kick off with our listener questions, I just wanted to cover a topic I bring up with you more or less. Well, not with you personally, but on Daily. the podcast, I mentioned the stage play and I have asked you a few times about it. And um, this was previously hush-hush information, as as Richard mentioned it to me before. Obviously, before he came on the podcast, he, he mentioned it and I had to keep it to myself because it was... Uh, well, it could have happened, but it didn't, and it looks like it's not going to. It's been discussed on Mike Fence and Stephen's podcast, actually. So I thought I've, I've spoken about it a bit more now. But I suppose um, to wish not to be a complete bragging arsehole, but you've allowed me to read through the first draft. <laughs> um, um, I don't know what you want to you want to say about it or not say, but what we do know is is as close to zero percent chance of happening, which is sad. For, for for many fans but um is there any part of the the first draft that, that you've completed is there anything you want to talk about obviously i've re- i've read through it that's a very privilege to have read through that so thank you for that and there are some you know there's some similar plots that we, we as fans know about maybe some of them involving different characters there's a bit of new material isn't there some old gags but slightly adapted punchlines and a mix and match of other gags and with a very intriguing ending obviously i can't say any more than that but is there anything you want to comment on about the stage play is it definitely a no-no what are your thoughts well, on it when you when you written it <laughs> it's interesting that you get these kind of tip-offs from richard and mike fenton steven <laughs> Yeah. basically they bugger all about it i mean only only what they've learned from me i mean i probably mentioned it in passing to richard it's not like richard has been uh kind of in, involved in any of it and was probably just intrigued at the idea yeah um, well just you know the pre- no i know no problem about you obviously mentioning the fact that i passed you the script to read um <laughs> no one else is going to see it so you know uh might as well get an airing um, it, what happened was a few years ago, I was approached by a production company, I probably won't name, a theatrical production company, um, who do quite a bit of theatre, and uh, about the idea of a One Foot in the Graves uh, transfer, would it be an interesting uh, thing to, to chew over? So I went for a meeting about that, and you know, I wasn't necessarily averse to it. I mean, I was already considering myself to be retired and uh, <clears throat> 
out of the pitch, certainly as far as uh, screen uh, work was concerned. And, um, you know, I've done a tiny bit of theatre and I certainly enjoyed theatre as a, as a, as a theatre goer. Uh, so it, it wasn't something that sort of put me off. And indeed, you know, the whole sort of idea of one foot in the grave on stage as a sort of, I mean, as, as a concept was tossed around endlessly all through, through the run of the show. Um, you know, in those days, I suppose Britain and Annette would have, you know, actually been on stage repeating their roles. Mm. But um, so I had a meeting and I said, well, I, it, it, you know, I really don't have the, the, the time or necessarily the inclination to sit down and write it. I was working on the second novel at the time. So I said, but, you know, we, we have my blessing. I took out, they took out an option agreement and um, and they came back with a sort of an outline for, from a, 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 a theatre writer. So the best of my recollection involved Margaret, um, the early stages of dementia. And I thought, this doesn't sound like a whole barrel of laughs. Uh, as usual, I thought the only way this would ever have a stand a chance of working would be you know, if I do it myself. So I then went away. And as I think I described to you before, I, you know, I reviewed, reviewed it more as a a jukebox comedy really unashamedly recycling as you say loads of stuff from the from the tv shows uh favorite moments re reorganizing some of them into in different shapes with different characters and um uh, well with the same characters in you know who are in the original but 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 sort of reassigning them as it were and um you know trying to make it much more collapsible in the, in basically all taking place in the in the, the Meldrews house with a few other uh, sets that you know mm. we would go to here and there so i it was it was over long and you know i'd be the first to say that it needed uh, a bit of pruning down but um and so that was um received quite enthusiastically to begin with um and it was only much later on um that um that the notes started to come in about what they thought i should do with it and uh, you know this is always uh, interference it's a thorny um area because you know it can always sound just pure arrogance on my part that i you know don't agree with what they're saying um like there are too many sets um this slows the the action down I don't agree. You know, it slows mm. the action down if you if you have a problem changing those sets, you know, physically on stage. But as a theatre goer, um, I love the fact that you get changes of uh, you know um, setting and scenery. You know, it's one of the things that's really stimulating for for an audience. Anyway, these are these are just sort of uh, uh, sides. I mean, one of the the. <sighs> I mean, there were, there were several reasons, really, I suppose, why I didn't, you know, if I felt in the end I had to withdraw the whole project. Um, chiefly, really, was the fact that they, in tandem with this, um, suggested we have a, a, have a go at a Jonathan Creek uh, adaptation for the stage. Yeah. Um, and the uh, same thing happened. <laughs> they came to me with an outline that they'd come up with, which I um, <laughs> would be very generous to say that didn't work. Um, and so yet again, I, I uh, you know, I turned my attention to, to producing one, uh, you know, yeah. play as well. Um, now that took a lot more work because that wasn't me. I mean, I did recycle some sort of favourite comedy moments, but I took the view that you needed a new mystery story if you're going to put it on stage. Because I suppose so yeah 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 watch the show would um you know would, would would know what the end is so so that required more work um also in this case um alan and caroline would have been playing their original characters as I mean, yeah, they, I was, 
as they are now, 20 years on, you know, having come back together again. So, so glad yeah. you're, sp you're speaking about the, the fact that you considered doing a Creek stage play because that was, wanted to speak about that as well because obviously I love Jonathan Creek. But... Well, um, yes, to, just to try and pracy all of that, um, Alan and Caroline were very up for it. Um, so, you know, we, that, was a, that was a huge uh, plus compared with the, the one for the great, where, of course, we would be looking for new um, actors to take those roles on. Yeah. Um, and it was really the notes that came in on Jonathan Creek that uh, convinced me we weren't on the same page at all. And, uh, you know, without going into them all, because that would be more tedious, um, <clears throat> I decided in the end that uh, it wasn't a meeting of minds and, you know, I should withdraw both projects. And that's what I did. I mean, I think one of the, you know, the crucial things really with, with obviously with One Foot in the Grave is how do you, you know, recast Victor and Margaret? And Margaret wasn't so much of a problem in my mind, because I thought the ideal person to play Margaret would have been an ex daughter selena yeah who i, I, I have going to ask you who, who, did you have did you have um seasoned well, professionals in mind exactly like her she doesn't look like her but she sounds just had, yeah and she could you know she would actually be able to replicate all those mannerisms and you know, yeah Almost. But Victor, though, Victor, you know, we we did try a few names out, and you know, could I mean, you, could you let, could that, you that, let that, us that know was, those names? Sorry well, to interrupt you. I, you know, I'm not. Uh, I don't. I honestly, you know, I can't actually remember very many of them. I mean, there probably a lot of them were unavailable. I say a lot of them. I don't think we tried more than one or two. I yeah. mean, you go through people like Harry Enfield, and you know, I think was busy on something else. Oh, okay. I can see. I can see that. And um, but and and of course Paul Whitehouse playing um, Grandad and um, in the Fools musical Albert in in the Only Fools is is a tour de force, you know. And people sit there and they they, they love it. That yeah. worked really well. That's an example in my mind of a, a TV to stage transfer that you know I thought was a. a so you saw the the music, the Fools and Oz musical, yeah. did you? Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a triumph, and I thought the young guys and and uh, actresses who you know who took on those uh, famous character roles, yeah, were superb. They were, and, um, but it's very hard to see that working as well with you know with my sets of characters, and as you know from reading it. Um, not all of my regular or semi-regular characters were in it anyway. There was only Mrs. Warboys, um, who, you know, again, you know, how do you replace a door? I know. Yeah. It's difficult. So it's that, was, that was just to conclude my, you know, the final answer bit of the, the portion of the answer to your question. Um, I just couldn't see myself um, personally being so involved as I always was, as you know, uh, in the production process. Um, yeah, with the with the pandemic and everything that's going on, and just sheer, you know, my age now, and I just haven't really got the will or the energy to to participate and to go through those hoops and all of the you know the trials and tribulations of day by day rehearsals. Yeah, like yeah. So it really, for a quiet life, I felt huge relief when i said maybe that now okay the script sits there and you know maybe one day who knows but this um, is it yeah I, maybe in a couple of years you might go oh, why not I, I can understand your reasons why I'm trying to learn to stop asking you about the idea of uh, going forward <laughs> it doesn't get very i mean the ending is obviously the thing that i wouldn't particularly want to um be divulging at the moment because you know yes yeah, so i won't yeah we won't speak about that and but, i don't uh, know what else you would i mean you know i'd be interested in a way just almost out of academic interest to, to know what sort what what kind of suggestions people might have to offer um about oh. recasting because you know there's a that's good it's a good idea actually people should get in get in touch with me and then i could forward them on to you and it might uh 
Well, or even just as a as a as a discussion, just as a discussion for fun, point, yeah. For fun, who now, you know, I mean, given the as you know the um, you know the the trickiness of casting Victor in the first place, when of course it was written for Richard, and then he turned it down, and then we have to start looking, you know, further afield. I mean, yeah, we've already been through that once. Fortunately, in that yeah. case, we managed to get him in the end. But uh, um, okay, casting is you know it can be the, the life or death of any project. Really, that's yeah, that, that's that's right. Well, this might be a good way into questions now. This first question is from an Alex Wiseman. I believe Alex has interviewed you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, recently, or not recently, maybe last year. A couple of years ago. He says, I'm a massive fan of One Foot in the Grave um, and a huge fan of David's writing. Love One Foot in the Grave and Jonathan Creek. But my question today would be, how do you even start putting an episode together? Do you kind of write the end before you've kind of written the start? How do you do it? Because they're just so clever and so funny and hey 30 years on we're all still laughing so thanks for all the laughs david and thanks for doing the podcast and uh, that's from alex thank you alex well alex uh, hello again um <laughs> i felt probably very little left to say to you after our marathon conversations before but um i you know my my brief answer to that kind of question is always if i knew how i did it it will be a lot easier and quicker mm. um uh, obviously one foot in the grave and John the Creek are, are, are different uh, sort of animals uh, really in terms of how you know one would have would approach them in the days when I used to write those shows with one foot in the grave it was primarily you know what's funny can I come up with a funny idea can I think of something funny um, yeah. which could be anywhere you know could come from anywhere any place at all um, and then it's it's just um, a kind of free association and just just letting your mind wander around this sort of labyrinth of possibilities and you know most of which <clears throat> like any kind of good maze you know you are dead ends and don't get you anywhere until yeah. you, you come out the other end with or you, you know you, you alight upon something that makes you chuckle or you get a kind of little green light goes on in your head with with Jonathan Creek it was very much the um, the the, mis the mystery trying to find uh, trying to think of the mystery or the um... can you hear that cat um, <laughs> no, I can hear my dog, not my dog, but next door neighbour's dog yapping. You just, you just wait, wait. You might want to nip that bit out. He's walking, That's right. Just coming through one door and he's going out another. With 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 Jonathan Creek, obviously, it was it was uh, really a question of starting with the mystery, and um, that was either I started with something um, uh, uh, that I thought prima facie couldn't be explained, and then trying to find a way to explain it in some lateral form, or um, now and again, I would come up with some strange set of um, circumstances that seemed to me very interesting and sort of lateral to begin with. And then yeah. work out how you would, um, from that, uh, arrive at a, a scenario that appeared impossible. <laughs> that was that was what I did with the, um, the duplicate room in No Trace of Tracing. Oh, okay. That's I came that, up yeah. with the idea of somebody in a room that they thought it was one room and actually it was somewhere else, and then worked from that. If you uh, start with the, the mysterious, unexplainable murder or situation, whatever it is, and then have to try to think of a way it could work, you, the chances are the audience will be able to do the same thing. Yeah, so that, it, that's, it, 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 that's what brings me into a, a similar question with a 
an additional sub question and this is from this is from dan clay in terms of writing episodes what was your starting point was it working backwards from an ending was it something else that set the spark of the story in motion and in that respect david which single episode are you most proud of as a writer that's from dan thank you dan goodness gracious well you know favorite episodes and they're always always hard to, to identify um yes there's a lot of uh, working backwards that goes on will surprise nobody to yeah learn just, yeah in, just in, covered in my, you from in my shows it's interesting the very first radio show that i ever was associated with in 1970 which the thing with david jason was in i've probably talked about this before it was called the next program follows almost immediately and it was written by Prime Man, 99% of it was written by a guy called Pete Spence, who did uh, To the Man of Born. And um, it all took place in a, in a comedy factory. And the premise was that um, the managing director went around handing out these punchlines to everybody in the different rooms. And they had to then come up with a sketch that ended with that punchline. And that all looked incredibly impressive. But of course, it's the same principle as I'm saying now. You know, you work out, you write the sketch and then just lift out the punchline at the end of it, give it to him. And then, you know, if you're given the punchline first, um, it seems or can seem, you know, quite um, impressive that you then... It's almost uh, like mock, mock the week, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, find a way to get the... Exactly. So um, anyway, so the, yes, there's quite a, a lot of that goes on. And I, as I, say, I don't suppose that's any, any great secret. Um, but the starting point, uh, as I've just said, is 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 really... I, I never knew what that starting point was. I didn't... You know, it wasn't like uh, I would always be drawing on something that just happened to me or something like, you know, if only it were that simple. Yeah. I mean, you watch things like the extras on science Feld and this that and the other and they say oh yes well this this business of the of horrible smelling of valet parked car you know this happened to me and this and you think oh god if only all these things did happen to me you know i'd be able to churn out far more episodes and you know maybe there were one or two things i think i've said before the uh the guy who talked about his um, person who committed suicide in the, in the house that I just bought. I think I told you that, that we that I put into that episode. With this is the Mr. Mr. Gittings. Mr. Old Mr. Gittings. What happened? Oh. I mean, that was based upon, but you know, those things are few and far between. If only there were more of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd be able to come up with, but I haven't. Um... If you're on a desert island and you've got to take one series of one from the grave, mm. what would you take? That's probably the, easiest way to come to a conclusion and i know your mind can change from day to day but right now what would you choose i think i'd probably take the final series to be honest i mean i know there were you know dissenters about that i mean i was particularly pleased with the final episode in terms of what we we did with it and i know you um kind of categorized it as much as a drama as a as a comedy Mm. um and so i was quite pleased with that but i thought there were some really strong um episodes in that series the the power cut episode i particularly threatening uh, weather uh, yeah, yeah threatening Re- weather and i mean that uh you had owen on uh recently and uh one of the um uh, uh days that he was filming um was at the read-through of that particular episode oh, um, right. which i've got a copy of uh here and um as it happened, I was stuck in bloody traffic that day. <laughs> I never got to the read-through in time. I was just on the motorway. Oh, really? But, of course, I watched the uh, his his video of it. And it, it's, I mean, if anything, funnier than the episode as transmitted because you've got all the cast sitting around just sort of 
falling about laughing at the line, which is very gratifying from my point of view. Yeah, um, yeah, you weren't you went stuck behind a horse trader, were you, David? Uh, no, no, well, on this occasion, I don't think I don't remember being. Uh, but they were, um, so that you know, I, I really loved everything that we did, um, in that, um, you know, and the risks we that we took, uh, as Chris told you, you know, turning the lighting down more and more because it had been, it was meant to be in, in yeah, no, oh, that's that's. Worked so well, so there was that, and uh, and I what I think was possibly one of our strongest ever episodes was the Dawn of Man. Um, yes, that is. Yeah, that, the, um, I often go on about the scene yeah. with Owen and, and Annette and Richard in the background getting chucked out of a window. That's just one of the best scenes of the whole series, in my opinion. Yeah, and you is that in that episode? Dawn of Man. <laughs> oh yes, that's right, because he's the guy who threw the swan in the river. Yes. Yeah, and um, and of course, all of that stems that um, uh, Nick Swain's self reflection stems mm. from having seen this reporter who looks like him on a um, skip. Yeah, and now uh, skip. Yes, what was it? Skip. Hope, skip Hoberman or something. Skip Hoberman. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, one of the things that. Um, this is an interesting little sort of tidbit on the. Um, it it was uh, it took a while before I realised when we were shooting that the okay Owen of course was playing Skip Hoberman, uh, you know, in the uh, Afghanistan or wherever it was he was, you know, uh, reporting from. Um, it, it sort of struck me that there's no necessity for it to be Owen's voice just because he looks like him. And of course, we started with it being Owen's voice. And then we thought, hang on, you know, the whole thing is it? it's someone who looks like um, Nick Swaney, but it doesn't mean he'd sound like him as well. So yeah, it's dubbed, we got someone into uh, double voice. Little things like that, that actually only occurred to you quite late on. Anyway, I thought that was, that was a good, because um, I'm, I'm actually I'm kind of cross-referencing all your podcasts now. But I remember <laughs> Graham Linehan saying, because that was put up for a BAFTA, that episode. As you probably know, when uh, when uh, shows are up for BAFTAs, you're invited to submit one particular episode of the series. And it was that one, wasn't that, it? That was the yeah. one we submitted. And he said, oh, when I found out it was that episode, I thought, well, we've got no chance at all for uh, the Black Books. But um, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, so I would say probably that series. And, and what was the, I'm trying to think of the title of the one with the, um, we had the bowel cancer test. And uh, uh, that was um, Tales of Terror. Tales of Terror. That's yeah. Right. Black Pudding. The orangutan. And yeah, I mean, all of all of that stuff. That's know. brilliant. No, yeah. Doug Allen Poe, you, you know, you'll get a lot more of, out of that. Um, anyway. I so love Series 6. My short, my short, not very short answer to that. That's but, fine. Okay. On to the next one. This is from an Anthony Satterthwaite. Hello, Tom and David. My name's Anthony. I'm a big fan of One Foot in the Grave, and uh, it's really great to be able to put a question to David. Thanks very much for the opportunity to do so. Uh, my favourite episode has always been Who's Listening? Uh, I just love everything about it. Um, I mean, for one thing, it's the only special i think that is really christmas based it also takes place around the time that you know the series is, was changing very much from the series one format of the old house to the new house and we just met patrick and pippa so it's a very it's very much a landmark episode in that it sets up uh, obviously the dynamic between patrick and victor over the bottle of wine and everything that went on there um what i was uh, interested to know was at the end of the man in the long black coat it always felt to me as if there was a, a very nice sense of resolution because uh, obviously 
obviously Victor is there for Patrick at a time of need. He gets the thanks post-it note at the end and it all feels like uh, bridges are sort of being built and there's a, there's a real sense of resolution there. From series three onwards, when we next see Patrick, it almost feels as if that, um, as if the ending of that episode never took place. I was just wondering what, you know, what the thought process there was. You know, was was that originally intended to be the end of the feud between them or was it simply a, a, a minor um, understanding before things kick off again because it always felt to me as if Patrick's character became somewhat reset from series three because from who will buy throughout who's listening man in long black coat it felt like there was a natural progression from they get off on the wrong foot victor drinks the expensive wine he bought and then the feud is resolved at the end of man in long black coat and then it somewhat gets reset from series three and, and I'm, i find myself scratching my head and thinking well hang on a minute what, what has patrick actually got against victor at this point uh, anyway otherwise you know um, great series uh, one of my favorite sitcoms and uh, thanks very much for the opportunity to uh, to ask this question i mean i'm great enjoying the podcast all right take care and uh, and all the best at the beginning of uh series three um now you'll have to remind so me basically is that, is that the is that the one where uh, is that Pip the, has lost the, the pendulum no, no um, is, Pip, is, um is uh, monday morning we find so the start of um series three as you say monday yeah. morning with so they've been uh, burgled that's with the the Aylesbury's. Yeah, so the end of the man in the long black coat, Pippa's lost the baby, you yes. know, yeah, yeah, yeah. they've kissed and made up. I suppose in life, people make up and then they fall out again. But I suppose there is, this is what us fans do. We read into the psychology of the characters, you know, as far as we're concerned, Patrick and, and um, Victor have kissed and made up. The, the respect's there. The post-it notes have gone away. Um, the last one being thanks or something. And um, of course, yeah, it all kicks off again yes well of course i mean the you know the the honest answer to that is that you know you lose all the comedy if, if they're completely reconciled yeah. so <laughs> that that couldn't last long i suppose the you know the sort of the serious answer is that it was a moment of high emotion and sensitivity and vulnerability at his wife having you know he having lost that child and you know he was in a particularly sensitive frame of mind and uh, you know prepared to to make those allowances and to you know overlook all his grievances with victor but that wasn't going to last no. No, once no. you know more outlandish circumstances and events began to develop in yeah that's, fair, that's a fair answer yeah so you kick off with all of that i mean it would had they been the greatest of pals from then on <laughs> it wouldn't been much point in including them in the show really but uh, it's a, it's an interesting yeah. because they didn't have that strong bond in the first place they were probably prone to falling out again so that's fair enough but yeah uh... but then pippa was it's another instance very much like with owen's character nick swaney in which they appeared as a one-off uh, the two of them and you know I come up with these ideas I come up with the idea of the guy who comes to the door outward bound for the elderly and then uh, you know the rest of the series runs its course and then you get to struggling to think of things the following year for your you know for subsequent episodes and you think actually that was he was very funny doing that why don't yeah. you come let's say, how about if he's the next door neighbor i mean it's contrived but you know i'm prepared to 
um, to accept that in order, you know, for the pluses of having course, yeah. regular yeah. in the series. And the same with um, Angus and Janine. I mean, I can remember vividly standing on location outside the house in Brazilian Way with Susie. And um, the moment that that car drew up and we took the shot of, 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 of Victor reacting to them, and he said, Oh, it's, uh, and they say in unison, Patrick and Pippa. And we both looked at each other, Susie and I. Think, this is definitive, isn't it? We've got to have them back, you know, and especially as they are next door neighbours. I mean, you know, it was a perfect opportunity. So yeah, I love how you use Bath as the place they just visited. All yeah. that's my neck <laughs> of the my yes, neck of the woods. Yeah, I don't think there was any ulterior motive to that. It was just a long <laughs> way. Well, you didn't have me in mind. When I was, no, uh, when you met. were you born? I'm not sure. You were <laughs> I, I I was very young, um, yeah. but uh, anyway. Um, on to the next question. This is from Austin. If Les Dawson had been cast as Victor Meldrew, how would that have changed your approach to writing and developing the show? And also, are there any playwrights that have influenced your writing? That's from Austin. Thanks, Austin. Oh, right. Uh, two very uh, different. I feel like Liz Truss or somebody in front of the Hustings here <laughs> to make a note. <laughs> um, well, uh, who knows how it would have developed with, with Les. I mean, I had worked with Les on uh, on a, um, one of his TV series prior to that and um, got on with him extremely well. Very, very uh, comfortable working relationship and very, very good study of, um, you know, learnt his lines um, and kind of peaked in a way um, quite early in rehearsals. You learnt with Les Dawson not to keep hammering away at it for too long because he kind of lost the, the, you know, the peak moment. But um, so I've no doubt he would have been you know, sort of great technically in the role. Um, I, I mean, I suspect at the end of the day, well, no suspect about it, he wouldn't have had the depth that um, Richard brought to the part because Richard is a, you know, pucker, actor yeah. um, and a he, very very good strong actor outside of his all, all his comic talents and a bit yeah so whereas les essentially you know had a wonderful comic uh persona and 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 you know and delivery which served him very well for what he did i don't think it, we, you one would have been able to stretch the character as much as as we did and no. I also the the pairing of him with someone like annette would have felt you know rather less believable and he passed away in 93 wasn't it so you, unfortunately yeah. you only would have only had a few series but well, it might have been a three true. amazing series i mean at know. that stage you know you're just scrubbing around you know richard wilson has said no yeah. <laughs> where we've got been you know, a six recording dates coming up in the autumn i desperately don't want it to be a flop i don't want to just put someone in who is people you know is just not going to make anyone smile so <clears throat> the idea of, of casting les in it would at least you know think well you know, at least we made them laugh for six episodes or 12 or whatever it would have been. And um, it would have been different in that case. Yeah. So, um, I, I suppose I would immediately point towards Neil Simon. I've said this before, um, that um, in many ways, Victor is a kind of, uh, is, a, is a sort of British manifestation of that, you know, American Jewish angst, which um, Neil Simon, you know, uh, uh, played with um to such great effect in well i as i've always said that the, the the character that most inspired victor in in its his earliest form was um appeared in uh uh the plaza suite which was a, a sort of trio of playlets that neil simon wrote with walter Matthau playing this uh, irascible father of the bride character um <clears throat> his daughter locks herself in the 
in the bathroom in the hotel deciding she doesn't want to get married anymore and, and it's all about his rage and, and right fantastic dialogue it really made me laugh the first time i ever saw that on television um, so that kind of kicked off my sort of very early thoughts about the character i mean if you watch um or read or go to the theater to see prisoner of second avenue um great film made of that with um Jack Lemon and there was, so there was the Plaza Suite, which which was one uh, Neil Simon inspiration. Um, there was the Prisoner of Second Avenue, which was um, this guy who is just at his wits end. I mean, a bit like some of our um, sort of claustrophobic Victor episodes. Him and his wife stuck in this high rise apartment in New York in the middle of the uh, heat, in the middle of the uh, of a summer New York summer. Yeah, um, and and all of his kind of again the angst and the weary depression railing against everything that's going on in the world around him, the noisy neighbours and this that and the other. I mean, it's a yeah. fantastic piece of work. So those um, and and stacked with great lines as well. I mean, the odd couple just as you know, begin is just packed with wonderful lines doing that poker uh, scene at the beginning of the play. Yeah, she, so you, so that's that's one very that's different. yeah. You, you, I mean, you could do Lottery mysteries so well. But also the single room comedy one scene episodes, threatening weather, um, rearranging the dust, that sort of thing. So that's all kind of in the confines of four walls almost. But yeah. drawing the Greeks mystery, one from the greatest comedies, he got, got the best of both worlds with your talents there, David. Yes, indeed. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I I suppose people like Joe Orton as well, and the absurdist. I mean, uh, coming through in the sort of early seventies, um, starting to sort of read and watch um, bits of absurd drama that were around. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, N.F. Simpson. People like, it's just really kind of wacky sort of stuff. I mean, you know, I suppose there are, one might pretentiously say there are some echoes of Pinter in, you know, what, what we did in that in One Foot in the Grave as well. So lots of, you know, there are sort of disparate elements there. No one, I mean, as with most writers, I suppose you draw upon, you <clears throat> know, whole sort of raft of you know different influences yeah. are you ready for the next question yes okay this this next one is from Ned dupree comedian lots of uh yeah. sketch shows pranks he's been on channel falls balls of steel and he sent me the following question yo tom and david um it's Ned here just wanted to ask i've got so many questions but you know what it's kind of like when you get um, Thomas saying, oh, have you got anything to ask David about the series? And my God, One Foot in the Grave is quite possibly my favourite sitcom of all time. And that is, you know, that's saying something at the very least top three. Just one thing that I've watched the whole series, you know, four or five times over. I was a massive fan as a kid and I still love it. I've still got the box set. I put it on every now and again. It cheers me up. There's one thing I can't remember the episode um, Tom will know this with his um, vast knowledge of the series, obviously. I'm sure David will remember this, obviously. When he's in the, the holiday home, I'm sure Blake, it's Blakey. <laughs> Blakey, when he runs the holiday, the B&B, I think Margaret superglues a pint glass and it ends up on Victor's head. <laughs> Just one of these questions. How, it's so good. Like, How did you glue that to his head? Um, I just really have always wanted to know that. I know it's such a random kind of innocuous thing out of all the millions of questions, but that was the when Tom said, have you got anything to ask David? I was like, well, that's got to be uh, up there. And I just, I just really want to know. <laughs> it's such a weird thing to say, but yeah. I'd love to know it. How the hell did you glue that to my head? Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> 
That, well, was, that was Nedge, a very Nedge. Yes, a brief question there. A brief question. Um, Love well, and Death is the episode he's referring yeah, to. I, I, well, there was some... Uh, well, the first and foremost, uh, it will not surprise you to know that uh, it wasn't real glass. Um, so it was... Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> which made it a lot lighter. It looked like right, glass, okay. but it will have been um, uh, something much... Uh, I feel silly now, because it, like, it, 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 I always presumed it was. Something like that. Yes, designed... I mean, Chris Lawson, who did, uh, I think, probably vast majority of our special effects on Mumford and the Grave, and indeed on Jonathan Creek, in many ways was Jonathan Creek, because he came up with all of these... Um, you know, um, mechanisms and goodness knows what. Um, and um, so I think that was down to him, that episode. I'm not 100% sure. But he will, I mean, there will have been some kind of very uh, innocuous gluing uh, you know, adhesive of some sort, I presume, which will have uh, enabled that very, very lightweight um, glass would, you know, look alike glass to yeah. sit on its head with fluid in it as well, of course. And uh, I suppose the rest was just down to Richard, you know, managed to keep it in place. I, of course, we, it begins with with it, uh, you know, with the, with the beer in the glass, and he's lying there, and Margaret comes in and you know says, "What on earth have you done?" And the next time we see it, he's coming in from having used the, the, the <laughs> toilet, and it's still there, of course, Darling. which is yeah. the sort of big the big laugh. But he's holding it in place or supporting it with his hand all this time then he gets into bed still very carefully supporting it holding it all the while and you're you're kind of conditioned as an audience to believe that well he's just holding it there himself now and he gets into bed and then the final moment is that he turns over to sleep away from margaret takes his hand off and it stays where it is and I remember Richard saying he thought that would get a much bigger laugh than it did in, <laughs> on the night and it was it I think it kind of almost went for nothing because you were expecting the audience to really find it very, very funny that, no, actually, he wasn't just sporting it. It still is stuck on there. Um, but anyway, so that, yeah. was, that was sort of my... Thank you, Nedge. So this next question is from uh, someone called James. Hi, Tom. Hi, David. It's um, James Dreyfus again, <laughs> bugging you from another podcast. I just wanted to ask you, and I know this is quite a complicated question, but I just wanted to ask you, how do you work on three different plots, intertwining three or four different plots into each episode, which has always fascinated me and something that I've really struggled to do, um, without going into sort of immense detail? How do you begin to tackle that? Thanks very much. Hope you're well. Bye-bye. And that was James. Thank you, James. Thank you, James. Uh, so we have touched, James, on, yes. we've touched yeah. on this a little bit already, but it's more about the trio of plots. If you have two or three plots intertwined, yes, how does that work? Well, yeah, well, he was very uh, kind enough to say when he was talking to you about how, you know, how he was um, sort of noticed the interweaving of, uh, of different strands. I mean, a lot of this comes down to, uh, I mean, I'm being sort of tangential again, but... Um, when I used to write the Ronnie Corbett um, chair monologues, um, I took over from a guy called Spike Mullins, who I had hugest respect for, who was this wonderful uh, sort of mordant acerbic writer, who I think approached them in a kind of kind of stream of consciousness basis and did sort of just do his own rambling from from funny line to funny line. When I took over, I sat down and tried to think of whatever disparate individual autonomous jokes I could possibly come up with and then looked for a way that I could you know kind of shuffle them about and make you know get one to lead into another by some spurious means that takes a possible. skill 
Um, <laughs> yes, it well, it's incredible it, skills. But it, 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 it was, it's the same uh, approach that I tended to use on on um, Victor. That I would just sit down and think of funny things, and they might bear no relation to each other in any, of any kind. Um, and when I felt that I've got, I don't know how many, you know, it's so long ago now, you know, half a dozen really decent, solid comic ideas together, I would then fight, see if there was, you know, any way that I could put together a, a, a structure in which they, in which they kind of interconnected somehow. Mm. Um, and yes, it does, you know, <laughs> take a lot of, you know, sort of thought and, and very often, you know, there were things that just wouldn't slot in, but that wasn't necessarily a problem unless I was on episode six, because I could save them for another episode and very often did. As you probably know, uh, you know, there were things like, I mean, the garden gnomes that was in that Christmas special was, uh, originally in, um, I think it may even have been in the tortoise episode originally and you know but i took it out um my biggest um problem always has been writing is, with writing has been uh, insecurity insecurity that i uh, didn't have enough good stuff in any one show to uh, feel confident that it was going to stand up this was a, a kind of a debate that i was always having with richard who felt that we didn't need some to, to stuff the shows with so many ideas and to, we should let it breathe a bit more and you know and i i understood what you know because he was coming at it more as an actor i suppose um because the more of more ideas and you know you had in it the heart was in danger of getting a bit indigestible but um so that's really that that's that's why it happened the way it did um as to exactly how i managed uh, james to 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 thread them you know one into another sometimes by happy accident um you would you would find that there were sort of things and i'm trying to think of you know, an example of that. I've got a feeling that I had in that episode you mentioned earlier, um, uh, Tales of Terror, um, that two completely separate ideas were, one was to do with him, with Nick Swain's um, uh, amateur dramatics, taking the mask of the um, uh, birds in the room all round to the old people's mm. and severed heads on the washing line, all that kind of thing, which is kind of there for the visuals, obviously. Yeah. And um, the not quite so funny, but um, uh, important strand of the, of the um, colonoscopy and the bowel cancer screening and everything. And, there came a point at which, I, because you know, I got Victor taking on this, you know, appealing to his vanity, he takes over the role of Dracula in this play. You know, they, it gives gives you that moment where, which just sort of slotted into place when he's with the consultant and talking about, you know, how did blood get into your system? I have been drinking some blood and burning. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that, and now that, for instance, may look like a very very kind of clever and you know and pre pre-meditated uh, uh, link but it wasn't it just sort of came in. and sometimes you get those sort of um, you know fortuitous little uh, connections but um, it was just uh, a lot of work I mean I suppose if you if you look at them very carefully I'm not sure that the that the different strands do always necessarily flow from one to the other that 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 readily or that comfortably they just they just happen to sit there I can't. I can't really. I have to get into you know individual episodes. I think to try and. Um, you have to listen to someone from the podcast uh, reviews where we yeah. dived. <laughs> yeah. Got. 
if you're ever bored, of course. But uh, no, <laughs> no, that's no, a, that's no. uh, that's another fascinating insight into how you'd work. But uh, it's it's no straight answer, is it? It's just like you said, no, a little I'm bit of luck and using your more, you know, to get your sort of a master class in there because so much of it is just happenstance. And, mm. and you, um, but but the, but the short answer is that I ju- that I did just sit down and and think of unrelated, you know, very very unrelated um, funny ideas, and all the only criterion was that they had to be funny, and yeah. then I'd try and find a way to you know get them to work. Okay. Together. Um, okay, this next question is from a Graham Courage. Hi, David. I remember Bob Monkhouse appearing in Jonathan Creek and was a huge fan of your work. What was it like to have someone who was in comedy and television for over 50 years being a fan of yours? And what was he like to work with in the show? Have you ever been tempted to do what a lot of other TV shows and sitcoms have done over the years and to do a one-off prequel? possibly in the early years of Victor Margaret's marriage leading up to the loss of Stuart, or are you a fan of these prequels or should we stay as far away from them as possible? Thanks. Thank you, Graham. So the first part about uh, Mr. Bob Monkhouse and yeah, you know, what was it like, yeah. and then yeah, prequels, where do you want to start? Terribly one foot in the grave orientated, but I'm more than happy to, to answer. Um, and the first conversation I ever had with Bob Monkhouse was I uh, got a phone call years and years before just pick up the phone casually and, hi, oh, it's Bob Monkhouse. I've never met him, never had anything to do with him at all. Um, big fan of your work. Knew, had this encyclopedic knowledge of not just mine, I'm sure, but, but um, you know, probably every writer's work. Um, knew which sketches I had written on the two Ronnies. How? I have no idea because they were never, you know, attributed sketch by sketch on the credits, you know. Um, but he knew all this and he, I, I think he was looking for some help on some one-liners for, for a variety show or something, which I um, wasn't able to do. But um, And then um, many, many years later, we were, I'd written this part of Sylvester Lafay in the, um, in the uh, Scented Room episode of Jonathan Creek. Uh, fans will... Uh, yeah you'll recognize um and we were scrubbing around for ideas of who to play him and uh, there was again this is just one of those specific moments in time i remember getting up from the casting director's uh, office going to the toilet around the corner and along that whole corridor uh, on the fourth floor i think it was at television center they had all these uh, sort of promotional photographs of all their big stars from all the different shows and just coming out and seeing Bob there standing at me, I went back into the office and said, what about Bob Monkos? Is, is that a silly idea? So we sent him a script, and then a few days later, he was in the office chatting about it, and again, just talking with such knowledge and uh, insight. And you, uh, it mentions Father Brown, for instance, as one of my, I'm sure he was one of your influences, wasn't he? Yes, yes, yes. yes. He could recognise exactly where the show was coming from, and, you know, and very just incredibly lovely man considering how much sort of stick he had early on as being this sort of slick performer who was um you know not not necessarily revered in sort of in the kind of more trendy circles but not that i count myself among those but uh um but he you know just um uh very accessible um you know, just wanted to get it all right. Um, and, you know, and a really, really decent actor. I mean, he'd, he'd done a lot of 
acting work early on in um, in his career. In um, I think he was in one of the Carry On films early on. But uh, yeah. he'd also been in a series called All or Nothing at All, which was about a very serious play, um, uh, which Brian Eastman produced, I think, for ITV with Hugh Laurie and, uh, and Caroline uh, Quentin, as a matter of fact. Uh, okay. Man with a gambling addiction. So he was, you know, I mean, he had uh, a track record for... Um, you know, for uh, for serious serious acting and drama, yeah, more than I realised actually. Yeah, yeah, and he was no, he was just great. I remember him saying, oh, "I want to take you to lunch in the canteen at Pinewood," and we sat there and had a you know chat about this and that. And um, and of course, he was a um, incredibly skillful cartoonist, as you probably also know. I mean, he was doodling away all the time on location, and um, I have framed on my office wall some. Um, really strange, bizarre <laughs> cartoons that he that he did uh, wow. designed for me, and um, but um, yeah, I mean, a really, really interesting man on so many fronts. Um, so you know, oh, I must have been a, a, yeah. a, a, an absolute privilege to work with him. Yeah, and of course, you know, it all worked. What he did was wonderful in that episode, and you know, yeah, and we're 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 off. I'm putting the grave here, but uh, no, that's, that's okay. It, it was I did ask listeners questions about any of your work, and obviously, one from the grave was a popular topic. But <laughs> with, with with that in mind, yes, the prequels the question, one, yeah, prequels. Um, I, would, I don't know of many of those. I think they did one with Last of the Summer Wine, didn't they? Which I don't think I saw. And first I of the Summer Wine, wasn't it? First of all, yeah, and I know they tried to get one off the ground with rocking uh, chips, fools and horses. Well, that That's yeah, it. that that was. I mean, that was more successful. I think because it didn't really attempt to be a just dramatized. Uh, yeah, exactly. It wasn't one thing. It wasn't uh, only fools and horses in in style, uh, in sitcom in style. It was uh, yeah, uh, completely different take. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. I think it would it would because one from the grave is very much dramatized in places, so it could have worked. You know. You never yeah, know, it might be something again, you could do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, it wasn't something I ever particularly considered, but um, no. uh, I, it's not the silliest of ideas, but yet again, you'll be up against that old problem of the casting and, no. and you get to uh, believably uh, play those two characters as... Maybe in the novel form you could consider it, yeah. but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, okay. Well, on the topic of Jonathan Creek, if I may, my good friend uh, Simon he asked, "Hi, David. Uh, just wanted to know what your favourite Jonathan Creek episode was and why." Thank you, Simon. Oh goodness, well, might um... it have been the scented room? I know that's my uh, that's my pal. Or just question I just read. Out. He absolutely adores that episode. He will show that episode to uh, anyone he comes in contact with, more more or less over the years. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I quite probably agree with him, but Gall- problem at Gallows Gate for me personally. Um, but, well, yeah. uh, well, uh, thank you for that question, Simon. Anyway, I, I I think probably looking back over the whatever it is thirty episodes, the the two that I think felt most satisfying in a way were the the, the two specials that we did with um, well with Caroline and with with Julia, the uh, Black Canary and. Um, uh, Satan's Chimney. Um, oh yes, yeah. Beastly episodes they were. I have what you know, not watched them for for you know a few years and then come back to them and and been as objectively as one ever can be. Of course, <clears throat> you know, quite um, immodestly impressed by how much we 
managed to you know get into those shows and the and the and the, the sort of confluence of the comedy and the character and the and the mystery and the and the way the clues built up and uh, and the atmosphere as well they both have obviously very sort of strong gothic atmosphere to them which kind of feels ideal for sort of christmasy wintry viewing yeah I agree. Um, and um, you know, so those I think probably would, you know, <laughs> sort of sort of stand out for me in many ways. Yeah. I, I know um the chap I the question I just did just read out Simon. He um some years ago wrote you a letter um practically pleading to to uh consider putting Caroline Quentin back in. To no disrespect to the the other actresses, but mm. she was very popular as Manny Magellan. And um, if, you know, with the stage play talk, you know, she would may make that comeback. But if you ever revived Jonathan Creek, and I know say so you're retired now, but would, would, would you consider putting her back in even just as a cameo passing role? Well, I, I mean, it's it's it's, um, it's a common uh, comment that um, that Caroline was, a, you know, was a, a sort of a favourite. I think they've all kind of worked very well in their different ways. And, you know, it's the fact, it depends whether you embrace the different types of, sidekicks for want of a better word um that you know in different directions they they went in um i mean in the in Cara, that maddie's case you had you know, i mean people referred to it as a will they won't they sort of i never quite saw it in those terms it started began obviously with uh, you know with a, with, a, with a sexual relationship tension yeah. which i think in my mind tended to sort of peter out um, you can almost it, overlook it, couldn't you? Because it was quite yeah. subtly done in the background. And it, it became, you know, they got on their, each other's nerves more than they were sort of, you know, necessarily um, wanting to get into bed with each other, which they did, of course. In um, yeah, House of Monkeys was a brilliant and episode. Later on, and I, d- you know, and I said, um, I said, I just want to get this over with. I think it was the. Um, was it Ghost Forge where they said, "Well, we've done it. Yes, we won't be doing it again." No, and that was that. And there was a lot of discussion on the on the show amongst the the team. Well, this, this is a bit sort of <laughs> a bit sort of throwaway, isn't it? You know, for such a monumental moment. And I, yeah, that's exactly what I want it to be. I don't yeah. know. Let's just get on with the race. So you had that. Then you had the sort of what I thought was kind of a, a, a different but equally interesting. Uh, dynamic with um, Julia's character, Julia Sawara, the Carla, mm. because she was um, um, obviously they had had a, a, a thing going, and then um, she mistook his um, you know, some comment that he'd made and went off in a huff and married Adrian Edwards' character, <laughs> and realised she'd done the wrong thing, and I, I, was, so there yeah. was that tension pervaded the, you know the rest of their episodes. I can't believe it was. Um... Julia, when I first watched, because I was watching that as it was aired, I couldn't believe it was Julia Sawala from Absolutely Fabulous, just completely mm. different person as far as I could see yeah, at the time. She but was, she was great. I mean, we saw, <clears throat> I think, a hundred actresses for that part. I think it was wow. We went and and to be honest, Julia was one of the first that you know I'd considered, and I and we were told she was unavailable, and then we found out she wasn't. So it made full circle. Yeah, just about every actor. Um, and so there was that going on. Then, of course, with um, with Sheridan's character, there was no really. She was so much younger than him. Anything yeah. anyway, and there was you know real rivalry going on there between the you know sort of the old guard and the, the new coming through and so that was another different uh, uh dynamic uh, and then of course he gets married which was disappointed a lot of people but that was um i mean again i, th- I think i probably made no secret of this that 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 final series was um was really a, an exercise in recycling a lot of material that i'd written from this itv project which never 
Um, mm. Okay, I didn't, I didn't know that. No, I. Uh, yes, well, I, I'd got this show called Ergo, which I was going to do at, at ITV, and um, uh, which Rob Webb was. Uh, um, I did. Re- I remember reading an article. I think British Comedy Guide might publish something about yeah. it being well, canned. Yeah, disappointed. And, uh, and it was the old, it was the same same thing. I mean, we got as far as actually scouting locations. It was in pre-production, and uh, the notes started coming down. I mean, really quite involved notes that I just didn't recognise. I thought this isn't mm. this isn't this isn't going to work. And so no. I withdrew. It's it. all or anyway, nothing, isn't it? And of course, I was left with six scripts on my hand, <laughs> never being one to waste, uh, you know, good material or ideas. And I thought, well let's do some more creeks in which he is because of this series took place in a country village in which he settled down and you know maybe we can you know, give it a different slant it was never meant to be a reprise of the sort of you know the gothic murders it was you know how would how would jonathan creek operate in a more you know sort of more real <laughs> slightly domestic sort of situation yeah you got to, i suppose you got to evolve him to some stuff but i think I mentioned house of monkeys earlier with annette appearance and she was very much reading sort of between the lines the relationship between maddie and and jonathan she's almost like a psychologist in in the moment yeah well uh, that was based on desmond morris of course that was you know she was a female morris um attributing all these um you know kind of animal characteristics i mean at that point yes they were you know that 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 uh, sexual dynamic was still in sort of full 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 flood but uh yeah the way as the series went on I got a another a question from Jake Godfrey, and it's Jonathan Creek related. Is there any possibility of there being a final special to wrap up Jonathan Creek? Also, would you ever consider writing a Jonathan Creek novel like you did with One Foot? Thank you, uh, Jake. Well, thank you for those questions, Jake. I, I, disappointingly, I think the answer is no to both. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I thought you'd say that. Sadly. I was hoping for the novel side. I, th- I thought yeah, well, hoping you say maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's hard work. It's just writing is so hard. This is the other thing. I mean, I I know probably a lot of writers who, over the years who, you know, they just sit down and it all flows from their pen. Um, and I never had that experience. And when I wrote with Andrew Marshall, we used to sit there and oh god, this isn't getting any easier, is it? Oh god, why don't we go and open a switch? Hitting shop? wall after wall, and uh, yeah. I can imagine. Um, and it, you know, it was just purgatory. Um, I mean, the moment when you've come up with something that you feel is, oh, wow, that's funny, and they're sitting there rolling with laughter, well, I am on my own, <laughs> sitting and rolling with laughter on my own, fairly sad thought. Um, but it does, you know, it does happen, and then you think it's all worthwhile. But, um, and of course, writing for print is even more um you know, taxing because you, you know, just it's all words and you're you know having to write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. And um, you know, I mean I would spend just, you know, hours on a sentence, you know. I mean when I wrote that um uh, that scene and that was in Love and Death, I think, when they're in the train going on the way to the boarding house and uh Margaret's reading out these this word game that Victor's been playing <laughs> all these different things. I mean, that took a day, I think. You know? Is it? I remember thinking to myself, what other writer would spend <laughs> this amount of time, you know, just trying to get all these different words, that, you know, that obviously were sort of rather provocative uh, ones that you come up with and then, and then having to find a word that they would all come out of. I mean, I suppose that's what, you know, gave it the 
you know, whatever strength it had was. I was yeah, I, I, I know Ricky, Ricky Gervais has said it takes a good three months to write one episode or something sometimes. Yeah. You know, so it's... I remember Jerry Seinfeld saying, you know, <laughs> he would spend hours just try, just working on getting rid of one syllable from a line. And yeah. it happily yeah. spend hours because it is that difference. You know, that's the difference between the rhythm of it, you know, making you know it working and not working. Um, and the other part of that question was, I've already forgotten now, whether I was... Um, it was... Like a, 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 a novel. Creek special to pay it, to pay, pay it all off. Um, uh, but I, I don't, I think... Wrap up Creek, sorry. Yeah, I think we're, we've sort of probably passed that point as well. I mean, in many ways, I've sort of felt that Demon's Roost kind of reached that point because it was... Um, you know, we learned for the first time out of all of the episodes that he'd had this brother and that it was the brother who had uh, introduced him to magic um, way, way back in, uh, in, a, in his childhood. And we never spell out, rather like with Stuart, we never spell out what happened to the brother, but we assume there was something tragic. Yeah, uh, yeah. We can't end on that on that little note with the um, you know all these letters, which again was was inspired by the fairy letters, inspired by this Spike Milligan who I worked with in the eighties. Um, he'd he'd written all these little fairy letters to his children when they were you know, very very young, and it's just such a sort of sweet and mm. moving thing to see all these tiny little letters that you know written by the fairies, supposedly, and they'll spill out of this. Globe That's fascinating. That, yeah, I, I think that's a fair rubbish tip, you know. That's fair. Felt like a you know, as if I had in a way, um, you know, sort of drawn the curtain down on that. Well, that brings us to the end of part one of one of the podcast QA with David Renwick. I'll be back next week playing you the second of the two episodes. I appreciate your patience at this time. Any feedback you've got, let me know if your thoughts on David's answers. And, you know, perhaps if you've got any follow-up questions, I may be able to send them on to the, the man himself who, who may or may not be able to respond. But it's always worth a try. Cheers, guys. I look forward to playing next week's episode. Thank you. Like in the name of sanity. <laughs>